If you've got a Bible, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 26. And uh, as you're turning there, I'm going to catch you up on what's been happening because if you might remember, uh, we were in Acts chapter 21 last week. And a lot has gone on. Actually, where we find Paul uh, in Caesarea, he, uh, it is over two years after chapter 21. And Paul is incarcerated. He's been uh, arrested. Uh, he has gone through multiple beatings, multiple trials, uh, attempts uh, at, on his life, uh, planned ambushes. Uh, Paul has uh, had a lot going on in these two years, been through a lot. And here in Caesarea, he is uh, before uh, Portius Festus, who is the Roman governor, uh, was stationed in Caesarea, and then also uh, King Agrippa. And and actually, what we find right before, the reason for this final trial, this final defense of Paul is to give of himself and of the gospel. The, The last one that we will read about and see in the book of Acts is because uh, Festus, uh, Paul is actually appealed to, in, in the last time that he was in, in front of Festus, uh, he appealed to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he had a right uh, that if he felt like he was being treated unfairly, if there was any issue with the trial circumstances uh, that he was having, he had the right to appeal to Caesar and be seen and heard in front of Caesar in Rome. And so Paul's done that. Uh, but he's put Festus in a pretty difficult position because Festus doesn't really think there's a whole lot to what's going on here. You see, the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin has been adamant that, that Paul deserves to die, and yet Festus, the way he sees this as a Roman and actually new to his position, says this sounds like just a theological dispute between you guys. Like, really, like this shouldn't be that big of a deal. Especially, it's not really, it doesn't feel like a big enough deal to send you to the emperor of the world. I mean, he's got more important things going on than to deal with a Jewish squabble. Uh, But Paul's done that, and so because he's done that, Festus has to send him. But Festus doesn't know what to write about because he's like, I think there's probably a degree too. He's like, if I tell, you know, Caesar what I think this is, like, he's gonna be mad at me. And so as King Agrippa shows up, uh, and there's a whole lot of politics in here, and we're not going to deal with that. But King Agrippa comes to Caesarea, and, and Agrippa's been put in place by the Romans. He fancies himself as the king of the Jews, and so he's a, I guess you could call him, kind of a Jew. Uh, he knows of the Jewish customs. Uh, he attests to them, uh, but really it seems like Agrippa is doing this all for the political power that it seems to give him. There's a lot in Agrippa's life that seems to suggest that he doesn't really live out the things that he says he believes in. But Agrippa shows up and Festus says, it would be great if you could hear this guy, so that way you could tell me what to write when I send him to Caesar. And so that's, the, that's what's going on here in Caesarea as, as Paul gives his defense of himself and of the gospel. And so as we kind of get into that, into chapter 26, I actually want to start at the best place to always start a story, and that is the end. I want to look at and begin with the reactions that these two guys, Festus and Agrippa, have to what Paul is talking about, and then kind of talk about why would they react in the way that they do. And so if you turn there to verse 24, so chapter 26, verse 24, as Paul is making his defense, it says this, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Festus here is all this stuff Paul's talking about. Lights, visions, 
resurrected saviors. Even about how things in Paul's life have changed so dramatically. And Festus has no categories to possibly put this in. It doesn't make sense to him. Actually, the thing that is most plausible to him is a guy as smart and as, as well-learned as Paul and has gone through all the things that Paul has gone through, he's just finally snapped. Like we all know people when they've read one too many books, right? It's like, you know, you should like, you know, just go take a walk. Think about something else for a while, right? There is that point that we can have too much information, too much input, and we just don't know how to process it all, and we can lose it. And that's what Festus think is going on. How could someone be raised from the dead? Better yet, how could someone be raised from the dead than appear to you from heaven? And why in the world would you go and do what this supposed raised, resurrected Savior who appeared to you in a blinding light on a road to Damascus told you to do? It's crazy, Paul. None of it makes sense. It doesn't make sense. What's more is it isn't empirical. There's no evidence for it. It's not rational. We can really identify with Festus, right? Because this is for us, a lot of us, our major holdup with the claims of Jesus. What the Bible says, whether or not it's true. How do I know that it's fact? What evidence do you have to support these claims? How can you prove that someone raised from the dead, an empty tomb doesn't really do much for me? You can point me to any empty tomb and say, look, it's proof. There's someone there. Doesn't mean it actually happened. For so many of us, our common objection to what the Bible says Jesus says, is, does, what it says that we're supposed to be about, who we are, what we were made for, all of these things. Our biggest objection usually is the rational objection of, I just don't know if it is fact. If I knew it was fact, then I would do it. And look, I could spend the next two hours talking to you all about how we have to exercise faith in some degree, in one way or another, with things in our life. No matter how much we like to think our lives are based upon fact, cold hard truths, things that can be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, there comes a point when we take things based on faith. There comes a point when we have to believe in something even though we can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt it is that way. But I'm not going to talk about that because that's actually not the point. And we know it's not the point because Paul doesn't even respond to Festus's objections here. He just says, hey man, I'm not crazy. And that's good enough. And so then he turns to Agrippa and he tries to have, make inroads with this king who knows what Paul is talking about. He actually finds a common point of agreement. He says, you believe in the prophets. You know about these. You know about what they prophesied, that you know about what was promised by God. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And Agrippa's response then it's a bit different. And it says, And Agrippa said to Paul there in verse 28, In a short time, Paul, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa's response is what the other half of us, I guess you could say, would say. Not so much, I need cold hard proof, but how in the world can you believe that just by talking to me about this Jesus for a little while, I'm just all of a sudden going to change my life? For those of us that know what Scripture says, that we tend to believe in it, we also know how far away we are from it. On top of, we know all the times that we've tried to live out what we say we believe in, we've fallen short of that. And so for many of us, 
we think, there's no way God could possibly change me that quickly. I definitely need more classes, more sermons, seminars, counseling sessions. I actually just need more time, is what Agrippa's saying. This is big. And how in the world can you believe that God could change someone like me that quickly? Or we just even say, now just isn't the right time. I have a lot of things going on. And you know, once I get those things kind of squared away and taken care of in my life, I get my you know, ducks in a row, then maybe we can talk about what Jesus is saying and maybe I'll convert. Maybe I'll finally believe it. Two seemingly different objections. But both of these guys, in their own way, are come unhinged. And so you kind of have to ask the question, why? Why would they react this way? Why would they be so triggered by what Paul is saying? Because what it looks like on the surface is Paul is just simply talking about a resurrected Messiah. A guy that was killed and he was raised again to death. And that's something that's like, as much as you might think, well, this guy's kind of lost it, it doesn't mean you cut him off and start yelling at him like, hey man, you're crazy. It's actually like something that you could like sit down like over coffee, right? And like just, hey, let's agree to disagree. Or you bring your proof and I'll like have my objections and let's talk it out, right? And yet both Festus and Agrippa have these reactions where it's like, there's no way. Don't even want to consider it. This, you're nuts. And so it has to be about something more than just the, the, the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that Paul is talking about, he's claiming, and he's challenging these two guys with. And that's exactly what's going on. If we back up to verse 4, there in chapter 26, as Paul begins his defense of himself and consequently the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says this, he starts in a place I don't think most of us would start. We would usually start with fact. Let me prove to you the ways this actually happened. Instead, he starts with hope. He says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if, they're, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Paul says, that's where my hope was. But he said, that's all changed. He says, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. In summary, what Paul is saying is my life before that moment on the Damascus road wasn't built on the sure foundation that I thought it was. I wasn't actually about the things I thought I was. See, he says, I have realized that the hope that I have in Jesus is the same hope that my brothers and sisters who are Jews now are trying to attain to day and night. I found it. The thing I was looking for, the, the thing I thought I was about, I found it in this man, this person, this Messiah of Jesus. And the thing that's killing me is I have so many people that I care about, so many people that were with me in my pursuit to stamp him out, that they themselves day and night are hoping to get there. And I know that they never will. They work day and night for something that they can't reach. Something that's never going to happen and their hope is placed in the wrong thing. This is what Paul harkens back to where he tells them, he says, I was, according to the strictest party, a Pharisee. He'll say later in a different place, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul says, I was the best. I kept to the laws. 
I was zealous about it. Paul saw this as his job. We've talked about this before, about how as a Pharisee, Paul understood his role in God's creation to be one where he was imparted with the great responsibility to make sure that he kept the circumstances that were necessary to usher in the coming of God's Messiah, to usher in God's kingdom. That if Paul could be zealous enough, if Paul could care enough about God's coming to keep himself holy, but also the nation of Israel holy, then God's Messiah would come, and then God's kingdom would be instituted, and God's kingdom would overthrow the kingdoms of this world, particularly Rome. And so, it might sound like a lot, but what an awesome responsibility, right? Like, talk about having, like, a life's purpose that is worth something, right? You know, what's your purpose? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to make, you know, a lot of money and have a nice retirement. What's your purpose? Well, I'm hoping to usher in God's kingdom. That's a pretty cool, like, reason to be alive and, like, be working towards stuff, right? And so that's what Paul understood. That's what he was all about. But what he came to realize through Jesus Christ was he was hoping to do this himself. He was actually relying on himself. He thought it was up to him. And he thought it was up to other people. And so he was looking to himself and he was looking to other people. Sure, Paul believed in the promise of God, but he did not believe in God's power to make it happen. It was on Paul and it was on those around him to make it happen. And anybody that got out of line needed to be put back in the line. Paul's hope, he realized, was not in God but in himself. He was looking to the wrong thing. And that needed to change. That needed to change because it messed with more than this hope. It actually messed with his perspective and his priorities. Look at there in verses 9 through 11. He goes on. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Paul just wants you to know, I didn't stone them, I just held their coats. He says, and I punched them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul's hope being in himself to bring about the promises of God, not God bringing about the promises of God, led him to seeing the world, other people, and even how he fit into this world in a very different way than he should have. I mean, we can look at this and we can be like, man, Paul, whew, this is not the way to treat people. But he couldn't see it. I mean, obviously to us, this is a very adversarial approach to other people. An adversarial approach to what God wants to do and God, how God cares for and loves other people. And yet Paul couldn't see it. And the thing is, is when we find ourselves caught in a cycle where our perspectives and our priorities are all out of whack, and especially when we find ourselves in a place where we're relating to other people around us in an adversarial way, it is so, it's not only hard for us to see because everything makes sense to us. Our, our heightened reactions are, are they're logical. They make sense to us, right? We see all the reasons why we should be this way. 
It's not even that we can't even see how we're doing that. We're not open to people telling us that that's how we're being. I mean, I know this just from being married. I mean, the easiest way to get your spouse to calm down is to tell them they're upset, right? I mean, as soon as you mention it, they're like, oh, you're right. Whew, take a deep breath. I mean, if you... If you want to de-escalate a situation, just tell your spouse, hey, your voice is raised right now. They'll, they'll calm down right away. Like, that's, that's how it goes. And I'm not saying this because I know it from experience, last night trick-or-treating, but I'm just, you know, I'm... Just don't come to me for marriage advice. Paul's perspective and his priorities were out of whack because his hope was in himself. It was in other people. He thought that's how... God's way, God's kingdom, God's hope, his promise was going to come about. By sharing his own life, his, his own life story, and, and talking about these deeper things, uh, Paul shows that resur- the resurrection of Jesus isn't just a matter of historical fact to be debated. G- Paul isn't standing up in front of a Festus and Agrippa and, and saying, Jesus was re- re- resurrected from the dead. Now let's talk about that. Paul is saying, Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and because of that, the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes a claim on your life. The power of God to raise Jesus from the dead means not just that you can change, but that you need to change. That you must change. And you need to change in ways you can't even begin to see for yourself. Paul's point In this entire chapter in Caesarea, there in front of the governor of Rome and King Agrippa, is that Jesus changes everything. The power of the resurrection shows not just what God can do in you, but what he wants to do in you. Not just to change what we think. Needs we can all look at ourselves. We know our deficiencies. We know areas we would like to be better in. We know how we let ourselves down, how we let people down around us, and we would like to rise to the occasion, be better in those places. And so when we hear about Jesus, we hear about hope, we hear about the resurrection, we say, great, finally, maybe an answer to the things I've been working at all my life and have yet to actually achieve. And Paul says, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Before we even get to that stuff, there's a whole lot more important things to deal with. Because it's not just about changing what you think needs to be changed, but even the things you don't think need to be changed in your life. To start actually at the most fundamental and let Jesus change everything about you. James Cooper says, once Jesus enters your life, he changes everything from your eternal destination to your daily walk with him. There is nothing that he does not want to touch and to affect in your life. This is what triggers Festus and Agrippa. This claim. This idea. This isn't just some nice thought that there's a power out there that they haven't realized. This isn't some neutral statement that a man was raised from the dead. Take it or leave it, whatever you want. This is a claim that if you are outside of the resurrected life of Jesus Christ, you have it wrong. 
And what's more is that once you give yourself to him, he is going to change the things that you find most fundamental about yourself. The thing that scares Festus and Agrippa, that if a man like Paul, a man as learned as him, as smart as him, that had as much as him, that was on a trajectory like his, could see this, could understand this, and could change so drastically, what could possibly happen to them? They had a lot riding on this, didn't they? They had built their lives up in certain ways. They had, there was much to lose. Didn't seem like much to gain. Sure, it would have been nice if Paul would have said, Jesus is resurrected, accept him, know him, you'll have eternal life, but keep living your life the same way. But that's not the message. That when you come to him, he's going to change everything about you, starting from what you hope in, what your life is built around, and leading to your perspectives, your priorities, and everything else after that. There is not a thing in your life that will not be touched by the grace of Christ. So what we see, what looks like two different reactions from these two guys... One's all rational, you got to prove it to me. One's all emotional, I'm just, you know, I need more time, that sort of thing. They're actually, they aren't that different. They actually come from the same source. And that is the thing that we need to realize about ourselves. That whatever objection that we might have to what we claim God can do or can't do in our life, what we're worthy of or not worthy of, what needs to be proven to us or debunked for us, All of those objections boil down to the same thing. That Jesus Christ is making a claim on our life that he wants to change everything and we don't want everything to change. Whatever you think might be the biggest holdup for you in giving your life and giving everything and giving that last holdout of your soul and how you see things and how you want things to be over to him and allowing him to do with it what he wants, just know this. It's not about the things that you probably say it's about. It's about the fact that you don't want him to have everything and to call the shots and say how it is all the time. I mean, let's be real. If you say, I just don't know if it's true, I need it to be proven to me, even if someone is able to prove it to you beyond a shadow of a doubt, would you right then and there finally give it all away? Probably not. Why? Because as much as you might say it's about that, it's about the fact that we don't want everything to change. Because we actually like the way we are, the things we believe in. We're okay with incremental change. We're okay with small change. Like we see things, like I said before, we see things in ourselves that we don't like and we would like to be that way. Actually, I I think the reason that so many of us, we have differing, I guess you could say, just taste in movies or books, the, the stories that draw us in. It's because we see in those stories the changes that we would like to see in our own life. You see, great stories have a climactic point in them where because of some climactic event, there is a shift that takes place in the behavior of an individual. And when we recognize that behavior, 
for the thing that we want to change in our life, like that sucks us in, that draws us in. We want to do that. We want to be that. It's not that they, like, we don't love love stories for like the sake of it or like comic book action stories for the sake of it. We, we see something in them that we would like to see in ourselves. We, we aspire to that. We want some degree of change. Like one of the stories I, I love uh, the most is uh, Pride and Prejudice. If you've ever read Jane or watched one of the iterations of it, Jane Austen's uh, movie. If you've seen like one Jane Austen thing, you've seen them all. So if you haven't seen Pride and Prejudice, if you've seen Sense and Sensibility, it's the same thing. Um, but uh, the great thing about that isn't that they end up in love in the end. It's that they come to a place where they realize their pride and their prejudice in their own life and they give that up for the sake of the other person. I love that because, and, and don't ask me who's prideful and who's prejudiced. Nobody knows that. But I love that in that story because I would like to think in my life when pride or prejudice is getting in the way of my relationship with my wife, I would be willing to lay that part of me down and die to that. We want to be we, we, we like to think, we, we, we aspire to be more courageous. We, we aspire to be more selfless. We aspire to stand up to justice. And the stories that show those things happening, we are drawn to. This is probably why movie night is so contentious in our households, because your spouse and you want to change different things about yourselves. It's not that they have a terrible taste in movies, and you're the only one that knows what a good movie is. In my house, that's true, but otherwise, no, that's, it's that you are drawn to being different, just not in every way. Jesus claims that we need to change everything, not just one thing or two things or a few things. We need an overhaul of how we think, of what we believe in, of how we see God, of how we see ourselves, of how we see other people. And that without this, the other changes we could possibly make in our life, the changes that we're drawn to in these stories that we like so much, they're not going to matter because our hope is still going to be tied up in the wrong thing. Our perspectives, our perspectives and priorities are going to be skewed and off whack because of that. That we have to start at the most fundamental level of who we are and allow Jesus to have that and everything beyond. That we don't get to choose which parts of Jesus gets to change in us. He gets it all. But like I said before, the problem with all of this and the problem with what Paul is saying and the problem that both Festus and Agrippa had is the reason we hope in the things we hope in, the reason that we have the priorities that we have or the perspectives that we have on certain areas of our life, the perceptions of people and how our world should work is because we like them. They make sense to us because from our viewpoint, they are what works. We've seen them work. They're logical. And we think if everybody would just feel the way that we feel about it, then everything would be great. See, we ultimately think that our convictions are good. And I'm not saying that our convictions are objectively good, but from our viewpoint, subjectively, we feel like our convictions are good. Nobody walks around being like, you know what, my worldview is really screwed up. I wish I didn't have it. Nobody is like, man, I wish I didn't vote for the political party I voted for. 
Nobody walks around wishing that they could feel differently about the world. We all like the way we feel about the world. We feel about ourselves. That's the reason we feel that way. It makes sense to us. It works. It's worked in our life. Both Festus and Agrippa were struggling with the same thing, and that is that they had seen what they thought was real power in Rome. Rome worked in their life, and what's more, Rome was working in the world around them. From their viewpoint, they would have said, because of Rome and the power that Rome has, the world has never known such peace. From their viewpoint, Rome was what brought about peace and prosperity. They never asked, though, I can imagine, the the people that had been subjugated into slavery. Rome had the power to connect the world in a way it had never been connected before. People talk all the time about how the gospel spread like it did in a large part because of the Roman road system that was established. It would not have been able to spread in the same way at the rate it did just a few hundred years before. Rome was a power that wasn't always only working for Agrippa and Festus's own life, their own prosperity. It was working for the world's. And what they also knew was is that real power had never raised anybody from the dead. And so why in the world would they give up everything that they had? Why would they let God, Jesus, have everything when it wasn't real power? We will only give up our deep-rooted views of how this world works, what we hope in, how we see things, when, when we find something better. We don't just give them up for anything, do we? But it has to be better. It has to be so over the top better to convince us that the way we see it is wrong and this is a better way. Uh, we were talking uh, this uh, last week in the offices about like your like first year in uh, in college, and it reminded me about my first year in college, obviously, because we were reminiscing about that. And um, as a political science major, the intro to politics class that I had, and the thing you come to realize, like kind of on the back end, uh, is that it's usually, that's the year that, like, all the professors are trying to convert you to the way that they see the world. And my, uh, my politics professor that year was um, unashamedly a big believer in uh, Karl Marx and his writings and his beliefs. And uh, it's something I never really come in contact with or read much about. I just always kind of heard, you know, Karl Marx was like a swear word. And um, so you didn't really talk about him, just hush whispers, you know, sort of thing. And so... Uh, so there I was, like freshman year with uh, not a lot of life experience or political theory experience and reading Karl Marx and just finding, you know, hey, wow, there is some stuff about this that like, it makes sense. I can see the world working that way. That doesn't actually sound that bad. Because that's the thing, the, the things we hope in, that we believe in, the way we see the world and how it works, a lot of it does make sense. A lot of it actually is pretty good. But then the thought hit me as we kind of kept going through the semester and, and, and reading about it and then finally kind of getting to, um, you know, the, where Marx believes ultimately, like, politics should go and everything like that. And the ultimate idea, just to kind of, like, boil it down, is, like, at some point, people with ultimate power are just going to give that up for the good of everybody. And I was like, man, that, that feels like you're putting an awful lot of hope in people. And if there's one thing I know about people is people stink. Like, they're just like, you can't trust them. And like, I, 
I mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't know a whole lot of history, but I, I definitely know that, like, it's not been, like, a routine of history that once people get to, like, ultimate power and stuff, they just kind of, like, let it go, you know, sort of thing. Actually, it kind of gets worse. They hold on to it more, and uh, people are corruptible and, and that sort of thing. And I was like, man, that just, it doesn't feel like a really good, like, thing to put your ultimate hope in. Now, I realized as I kind of kept going through my freshman year, my sophomore year of, of college and looking at it, I was like, actually, you know what? Like every political system, basically you're like saying, like, oh, yeah, my hope's going to be like in people and that people will do the right thing and that sort of thing. I was like, man, that just doesn't feel like something I can like really count on. And so like looking at like other, you know, other things, looking at economics and being like, ah, when it boils down to it, you're kind of putting your faith in people and hope in people and all these sorts of things. And like everything was built on through your own power, by keeping other people in line, basically being a good Pharisee like Paul was trying to be, that's what's going to work. That's what's going to make it. I was just like, man, I just don't know if I can trust in that. And it was my junior year. I had to come to the realization that I was actually doing that, that the reason I was... um, Pursuing a, a degree in political science and looking to uh, do law school was that I was chasing happiness. And I was chasing happiness through money. I, I thought that if I could have enough money, if I could have enough wealth, I would be ultimately happy. Because one thing I knew about growing up was we were poor, and I didn't like being poor. And my friends who their parents had more money seemed a whole lot more happy than did. I mean, for one thing, they didn't have to, like, slap their TV to get it to work. Our TV, we had the TV that, like, did this thing. and just, like, all of a sudden, like, start, like, cycling through the, like, picture and stuff. And the only way to fix it was to get up off the couch, walk over, and, like, slap the side of the TV really hard. I got to tell you, I got really good at knowing, like, exactly where to hit the TV and, and that sort of thing. And um, I got designated as our, TV's ofi- our family's official TV slapper. And, and you know what? My friends who didn't have to get up and slap the side of their TV seemed a whole lot happier than I was. And I just wanted a life where, like, I didn't have to hit my TV to make it work. I was like, this is what will bring me happiness. This is what will bring me joy. This is what will be fulfilling to my life. And the thing was, is what I was hoping in, the hope of happiness, and the hope of happiness by accumulating wealth. Turns out, I didn't even know what was going to bring me happiness. Because as it turns out later in my life, what I realize now is money is not a big motivating factor for me. It doesn't make me work harder. It doesn't make me aspire. That I have to have some greater sense of purpose than just simply making a bigger paycheck. To pour myself into it. To give myself to it. As much as we think we know what to put our hope in because we know what motivates us, what propels us, what is true, what is lasting, what matters to us, we are so far off so often and we orient our lives around a misperception of even ourselves that God says, you don't know what is best, but I do. See, the truth that college showed me in in, in coming to that realization is that anything less than Jesus in this world will fail. Anything less than Jesus is going to vanish. And anything less than Jesus will even turn on you no matter how much time 
you give to it, how much you've poured into it, how much you've sacrificed for it. Because anything less than Jesus in this world is built by people. And we are imperfect, we are mortal, and ultimately we are selfish. Much of it sounds good, a lot of it makes sense, but remember the source. That your political ideology, the accepted truths of this day, the things that we think that we can build our life upon because they will get us far in this life, they are going to crumble and wither away and be a thing of the past long before, not too long before you know it. Festus and Agrippa built their lives around an empire that we know today came to an end. The very thing that their hope was in ultimately failed. They weren't around long enough to see it. But we know how fleeting the thing that they hoped in was. Why are we any different when it's not about Jesus? And so as, for as good as our convictions might be, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the goals that you have for your life. Jesus is better than the priorities that you have taken on because of those goals. Jesus is better than your views on sexuality, economics, politics, charity, society, parenting, forgiveness, whatever it is that you have that you think is worth anything, Jesus is better because Jesus offers you far more than those things can ever give you. Whatever it is that you are holding on to and saying, I can't give that over to him because it's good. I can't let him have that because I am getting something out of that. If I let this go, what will happen to my life? What will I have to give up? The answer is Jesus is better and will give you more and do more for you than whatever you're keeping hold of for yourself. I think Luke includes the last three verses in verses 30 and 32 through 32 in this chapter just as a sort of irony for us to see really what this looks like. He says, Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Festus and Agrippa walk away speaking of freedom, and they could not recognize freedom right in front of them. That Paul could stand in front of them and say, I am glad I am here in chains before you. Because he saw it not as a failure of his life and getting off track, but as an opportunity that God was going to use for the greatest thing that you could possibly live for, and that is God's glory in Jesus Christ himself. Paul was grateful for his chains. In the midst of the hardest place that most of us could imagine our lives to be, Paul had a peace. Because his life was no longer based on how things might turn out or whether or not he was successful. His life was based on and built around the hope of Jesus and the fact that that is eternal, the fact that it is secure, and the fact that there is nothing that can take it away. When we hold on to anything in our life and we say, God, this isn't for you. I need this. 
We are opening ourselves up to a life of anxiety riddled with fear that it might fail. That the thing that we're hoping in and holding on to and saying, I would like to do it my way. I'd like to have my say here, please. This is the way I see it. Whether it's our family, our job, our career, our stature, whatever it might be, we're always going to be fearful that that could be undone. But in Jesus, we have a hope that does not wither or fade. It is not corruptible. It does not rust. It is secure. It is eternal. I can't imagine a person that wouldn't want to be able to be like Paul. Standing there two years, over two years into being incarcerated, in jail, in prison, in chains. And be able to stand up and say, I'm actually glad I'm here. I actually know where my life is headed. And that this is going to its ultimate purpose. That that what I want is actually happening. That God's will is being done. That I'm at peace with this. That this is all right. That no matter what goes on around me, and even if everything blows up and it looks like a total failure, I know it's not because my life has been wrapped up in Jesus and Jesus alone. I can't imagine anyone that wouldn't want to be able to say what Paul says here. It's something we all want, but the thing is, is we have to sacrifice everything for it. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is everything is worth it. Let's pray.